0: Tuesday, February the 15th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I will be your moderator today. And I literally have a ringside seat to greatness today because we're doing this in person, not Zoom. Sorry, General McMaster. We're doing it live in person. We have a special guest we'll get to in a minute. So when I say greatness, I'm referring to the historian, Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and today our very special guest, Barry Weiss. You may know Barry. She is a proprietor of the Common Sense newsletter on Substack, and she is also the host of the podcast called? Honestly. Which you can find on?
1: Everywhere you get your podcasts, and honored to be an honorary Goodfellow for today.
0: <laughs> Actually, you're a returning Goodfellow, Barry. And this is a special day in California. It's February the 15th. It is the last day of our state indoor mask mandate. But what most Californians don't realize is this mandate only applies to those counties that do not have a local mask mandate. So Californians waking up on the morning of February 16th are in for a surprise. Here in Santa Clara County, there is still there will still be a mask mandate in, in effect, same as your Los Angeles County. Barry, you were on a Bill Maher's show on HBO last month, and you said four words that set off a bit of a fire on cable television. And yeah, what I did you imagine that? Yes, to so imagine a great that. surprise. Yes, and what did you say? I'm done. With COVID,
1: yeah. I'm done
0: with this question.
1: No, I'm, I'm done with COVID. Oh,
0: I'm one done. individual on a cable news network said that you were acting childishly. Another uh, cable network claimed that you were, um, let's see, being mean—essentially cruelty. I think was the word they used. Uh, linked you to white supremacy. Yes. So this is your chance to a apologize. Jewish, les- <laughs> a Jewish
1: lesbian Nazi yes. here, white supremacist.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Door number one, you may grovel and apologize.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not not that. Door
0: number two, you may double down. Let's go to door number three. Explain what you said when you said you're over COVID because COVID's not done with us.
1: Yeah, so what I meant by that is obviously not to denigrate or dismiss the millions of people that have died from this horrible pandemic, which Mm is now in our third year, I think. Feels like a lot more than that, right? Um, but that's the story that's been told, and that's been told over and over and over again every single day in the legacy press. Mm-hmm. The invisible victims of COVID, and the ones that we're now sort of just starting to hear about, are the people, especially children, who have been suffered unbelievable learning loss, social and emotional growth, and the the most you know stark victims of that. And this is something we've been reporting on a lot on honestly, and also on common sense. Have been those children from poor and minority communities. You know, the whole idea, right, was stay home and stay safe. For those of us that come from homes where there is safety and you know, uh, food and a good Wi-Fi connection, that was doable. You know, everyone sitting here is a member of the Zoom class. For the people that are not the members of the Zoom class or what the journalist Alec McGillis has called the Amazon coalition, the people that actually make the cardboard boxes that and deliver the Amazon and the DoorDash or the Caviar or whatever to you, those people have suffered enormously. And I hope we'll get to this, but you know we're starting to see, I think, the sort of primal scream not just from angry COVID moms, who I think are gonna sway the 2022 election, but that's also what the trucker protest in Toronto is about. Now we're starting to see that in Israel, in Germany, in places all over the world, maybe soon DC. So when I say COVID's over, I mean I am sick of living in a world in which celebrities and the mayor of Los Angeles can go to the Super Bowl, party in their boxes without masks, and the next day, Los Angeles school children have to go to school and wear masks indoors and outdoors. This despite the fact that something around 800 children over the past two years total have died from this with or from COVID, the CDC doesn't distinguish. Why is that? That's what I mean. I'm sick of the illogic, I'm sick of the nonsense, I'm sick of draconian rules that make no sense at all and that are creating a two-tiered system between Americans that I think is un-American and wrong.
0: Here's what you told Bill Mark.
1: This is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. I really believe that.
2: Mm-hmm. Agree. Well, I thought it was very interesting that when you said that, you got a huge cheer, cheer. from the live audience. And uh, you also got one from from me, because I don't think what you were saying was some kind of emotional spasm at odds with scientific reality. In in fact, the pandemic has long past its peak uh, and in in effect is transitioning into an endemic disease with an infection fatality rate that is now around about or below that of influenza. So it wasn't actually something that that was irrational that you were saying. It is over and we are right to be fed up with it. The people who are now in hospital uh, in serious uh, illness are people who've declined to be vaccinated. Yes, right. And that is a very different situation from the one that we were in. Uh, right up until the middle of last year when vaccines were just becoming widely available. So, I I agreed wholeheartedly with what you said. What was fascinating to me was the the reaction to what you said, which some of which uh, Bill just quoted, which was, that was the crazy thing. There are clearly some people who can't quite let go of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They're kind of maskaholics. And I see them kind of masked with at least two, if not three masks, giving me death stares if I don't have the mask on. But I'm with you, and I tell you who else is with you, my kids are with you. Uh, you know, Thomas is 10, Campbell is four, yeah. still have to wear masks at school. It's obviously pointless. They know it's pointless. Certainly Thomas knows it's pointless. Campbell just kind of puts up with it. But you certainly are right that this has been a disaster for kids, especially kids in public school, unlike my privileged children, who have been deprived of education for a crazily long time. Fact, American children have had much, much less schooling over the last two years than their European counterparts, yes. even in countries where COVID was actually as bad, if not worse. The British schools were not closed for that long. The American schools, because of the power of the teachers' unions, have been closed for much longer on average than schools in Europe. And as for masks, I was in England last week. There are no masks on the kids in English schools. So this is outrageous. And it makes no scientific sense.
1: And I think also if you're, if you believe that the vaccines work, and I ran to get it as soon as I could, and you believe that the vaccines are life-saving, isn't it vaccine denialist to claim that COVID's not over once we have the vaccines, right? I, I don't get it. I, like, at what point does it end? Right. Right. And and that's that's what I was trying to get at.
2: Did you get COVID yet?
1: I okay. This is what's cr- either I had it in the very beginning, uh-huh. right. which I think I did. I had such a a serious respiratory infection. I went to the allergist, like I thought something was wrong. So either I was like victim zero in Manhattan or I'm the person that's literally done everything wrong and has somehow not gotten it. I don't it know. It is
2: a little embarrassing not to have had Omicron yeah, by yes. now.
1: Yes. I mean, it's like not being canceled at this point. You're doing something <laughs> wrong if you haven't been canceled. It means you're taking no risk.
3: So if I could, um, maybe if you want, were to be able to add an adjective, you might say, You're not over COVID, we're not over COVID, it's an endemic disease. You're over COVID policy. You're over ineffective, dreadfully costly, anti-scientific, completely crazy COVID policy, uh, such as forcing preschoolers, screaming preschoolers to wear masks. Um,
2: I wish they screamed, John. You know what's really depressing is they just put up with it. Some But they all look sad. I just have the impression looking at the kids in the morning when I drop camera off, oh, yeah. as they put their masks on, that school is not a lot of fun because you can't actually fully engage as a four-year-old with right. people whose faces you cannot properly see. So, you know, I think this is an important point.
3: Well, maybe your children are learning early that they school is full of people telling them things that aren't true.
1: (laughs) This is gonna be, by the way, the most right-wing generation that America's ever seen.
2: It's already obvious, Generation T. (laughs) They came of age, or (laughs) they had their first political experiences under him who must not be named. The elites
3: are full of it, and wait till the teachers try to tell them a lot of others, but I wanna, so you you mentioned on one of your podcasts too, the interest, something I've noticed, we're going backwards. Uh, an example you gave was on the school masking where originally it was maybe to protect grandma at home, then maybe to protect the teachers. Then came the, cra- it's always an answer in search of a question. The crazy idea we're there to protect the children, which as you mentioned, doesn't. It's, a, it's um, deeply unscientific. All of this stuff is deeply unscientific in the face of a exponentially growing disease. Um, this is just my, my one pitch for, for how this is dumb. Suppose it masks actually did um, reduce infections 20%. Well, if uh, you could reduce car crashes 20%, well, eh, maybe, you know, everyone wears a mask, we reduce car But when something's growing and it's doubling every two weeks, making it only double every two and a half weeks is basically a waste of time if there's any cost. And the costs are huge.
2: John, can I but ask wait, you a question?
3: I, I wanted to ask Barry a question.
2: Uh, <laughs> I'll hold on to my question.
3: Well, yeah, no. And, and, uh, but there uh,
2: is a big economics question waiting to be asked. Go ahead.
3: Well, this, the first question is the public policy, public psychology. This isn't just the scientists who refuse to be scientific. Uh, it's not just the politicians who refuse to be scientific. It's also the public demanding it. So why? what are we doing in California? We have no no statewide mask mandate. Actually, I'm, I'm all for it. Let localities do it. If Palo Alto wants to pass, you know, keep wearing masks for the next 10 years, let them do it. Right. Uh, but it is a law in response to public pressure. But what is going on? Um, why are we in this situation where our public policy product of, you know, science that's gone wrong, politics that's gone wrong, voters and pressure groups that go wrong, that is so dysfunctional and getting worse?
1: Do you mean why is it so screwed up or why aren't people sort of emitting a primal scream in unison? Well,
3: Which people part are, of it? are beginning to emit a primal scream in unison.
4: I think, I think but, the question is like, why are the people who are in charge of the policy? Why are they not over it? Well, again?
2: what happened? Because right? I mean, it doesn't apply to take, them. Take the mask. Because <laughs> the they, abbi- they don't abide by these them. rules. Look, think of the UK. They love
1: the pandemic. The
2: whole point of the great scandal that ought by now to have swept Boris Johnson from, from power is a scandal about hypocrisy. Right. It's about the fact that the elite made a whole set of rules yes. that they didn't themselves abide by. And there was a party in Downing Street basically every week. And I think part of what is making Canada on, you know, on one of those rare occasions interesting Precisely I can't
1: not look away. The yes.
2: disconnect between ordinary people's experience and the attitudes of the political elite, personified by Justin but Trudeau. There
3: are also teachers and teachers' unions which keep wanting the masks to go on and come up with endless unscientific arguments why this I mean, this is a
1: psychological on. question that I'm not equipped to ask, although I'm sure the historians and the strategists in this conversation can illuminate it more. Mm-hmm. Not to sound too dark or cynical, but people really like power. And there was a power that was granted through these restrictions that I think once people tasted it have been very very hard to let go of. I also see it in a way as being connected. I'm sorry, Bill.
0: No, it's, 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 it's because HR saw it as historian. No, no, I was
4: just yeah. going to say I think it is about control and power, and and I, I I'd like you to continue on that on that vein and why you think uh, you know, why they they want control. Why do they want to have you know a, a patriarchal matriarchal society where they're caring for us who don't know any better. And then, and then, also, you know, I think it says a lot about just our resilience as a society. That that I think so many people are willing to surrender to a certain extent to the to the disease, you know. And I'm, as, from a historian's perspective, you know, I'm thinking of of uh, Mark Bloch's book uh, "Strange Defeat" about France in, in 1940, uh, a brilliant book. And this is this is a, a manuscript that was found uh, in the attic of a famous historian uh, who also served as a reserve officer in the French Army. And, and he wrote a, mm. a, an examination, a, a, an explanation of the French Army's rapid defeat mm. uh, in 1940. Uh, sadly, you know, he was killed uh, a week before D-Day. He was a member of the resistance. He was, mm. he was executed by the Nazis. And the manuscript was discovered years later. It's a mm. fascinating story. But what he had concluded is that having gone through the trauma of World War I, that French society was unprepared to meet the challenge for, of the nazi invasion. and so the, the that's profound lack of confidence, lack of common identity, the, the failure of elites over the years. it's really it's a, it's a fascinating treatment of, of that of that collapse it was a setup for that collapse in, in, in 1940. and so i'm just wondering of, you know, i'm wondering about, you know, the you know 9/11 unanticipated lengthened difficulties of the wars in iraq and afghanistan you know, the the, the, um, the, the financial, financial crisis. crisis 2008, 2009, you know, lay an opioid epidemic on top of that, mm-hmm. right? The, the the diminishing confidence in leach over time. I mean, were, were we just set up to surrender to, to COVID-19? Uh, and is that what we're seeing? I don't think it's surrender. Though. I
2: mean, I think what happened was the, the public health bureaucracy uh, did all the wrong things. And uh, the worse it went, the more they doubled down on those wrong things. I mean, there were very early mistakes made on testing. There were early mistakes made on the nature of the origins of the pandemic. The and telling has,
1: of noble lies, right, as Fauci right. admitted to.
2: Yeah. And so we now know from the emails uh, that the people who were in charge of public health policy made a series of terrible errors. And they got trapped in a set of of, of positions, including on masks, which they arrived at eventually, uh, on the origins of the pandemic, uh, which they decided to fake in order to provide cover for the Chinese Communist Party for reasons that will doubtless one day be explained. And I think it's the disconnect between the way the public health bureaucracy thought about the pandemic and the way ordinary people behave that's crucial here. Especially when one has the sense that in private, a lot of people in the political elite didn't really abide by these rules. Right, it's, it's, we know that Nancy Pelosi did it. We know, we know that Gavin Newsom is not much better right. than Boris Johnson when it comes to not abiding by these rules. And that's why it's not been like a war. You know, in in war, certainly in France or Britain in 1940, everybody was in it. And uh, although doubtless there were irritating petty bureaucrats, turn that light out, don't you know there's a war on? There was a war on. The interesting thing about COVID is that it never felt like a war. And that, I think, is why, although people went along with a great deal Mm -hmm. they, they were asked to do, now that they discover, A, that it didn't work, Yes. I mean, let's face it, most of these things wholly failed
4: to stop yes. I would I would say, nearly a I would million say, ex- people ex- dying. In with the, with with the exception States. of the, the vaccine and right. The, right. The, the biomedical right. innovations. But most of the
2: non-pharmaceutical interventions in the United States yeah. seem to have been highly ineffectual. And then it turns out that the elites didn't abide by these rules anyway. And this brings me to my question for John. Yeah. It seems like, and the paper came out just a couple of weeks ago, there is an argument to be made that if you do a serious cost-benefit analysis, that the costs that we've inflicted on our society through a variety of non-pharmaceutical interventions did not, were not justified in terms of the public health benefit. If that's the case, and there's at least one paper out making that argument, then we can look back and say, a little bit like the French after 1940, this was a policy disaster. It, it, was, it, it involved sacrifice, loss of education, lots of people's cancer operations were postponed, and it didn't work. That's the thing that's gradually dawning on people. We did all this, why, and we still ended up with a million dead.
1: Well, do you think that it's gonna prove that great Barrington authors
2: were right? I'm beginning to think so, yes, Yes. actually. What do you think, Tom? Well, I've I've
3: read some of the There's actually now even review papers. Uh, These costs were enormous, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just sort of overall costs. As as Barry mentioned, the cost to kids, especially falling on low-income minority kids, kids who are already challenged to get a decent education, uh, one of your podcasts mentioned, which I thought was brilliant, the lack of sort of community programs that now you know, kids are out there shooting sure. each other because they're not playing midnight basketball. Uh, and and you know, the trillions of dollars lost in lockdowns for nothing. Uh, it's clear this, you know, it just did essentially nothing to, to slow the disease. Now, um, if we could learn this lesson, it would be great. We have a tendency <laughs> in this country to, uh, because we have to justify the narrative, to enshrine whatever idiocy we did last time as the only way to address things next time. So if we could come to this collective realization this was a disaster and not do it next time, that would be great. So long as next time isn't a pandemic where 30% of the people die, whereas in fact, there you really do need yeah. yeah, there's,
4: The stakes are too we, high. We could learn not the too, long yeah, lesson. There's too too long lesson. But
3: learning the right lesson would be. Now, the other great thing in which you've all mentioned is that it is clear in trying to understand what happened the elites are not, they're, they're hypocritical, but they also don't believe it. So they were passing things that they themselves did not believe to be true, because if they had believed it, they would have put their own masks on and, and not, mm-hmm. not, had, not had parties and so forth. So it was, it was infection control theater. It was to try to understand what's happening. They were responding to a demand that they saw it. Now, possibly this keeps them in power to sort of keep up a, a big enemy. But there's also a selection of, you know, the people who wander around Pal- Palo Alto outside in a 30 mile an hour wind with three masks on. Uh, there is a demand for uh, it's, it's always, uh, you know, we're always in great danger uh, sort of. thing.
2: There are, two, right. there are two impulses, aren't there? There's the, the petty, uh, officious impulse. Acton said that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but petty power corrupts pettily. And you encounter the petty people who are the people who say, well, oh, you should really be wearing a mask in here. That, that pettiness. But the other thing that's fascinating to me is that strange pathology of excessive prudence. The, the people the with the two yeah the two masks really? on on their bicycles but, but
3: fo- safetyism focused on one thing we're going to destroy the economy we're going to destroy but i'm going to feel virtuous but we're going mm-hmm. to feel virtuous about yeah. this one little dimension yeah. of safety no, I, think, I think i think the, the, the graphic
4: jonathan hates saw this coming you know, the safetyism right. totally it was, it was already ingrained as it seemed like and you know I'm, I'm in a profession where if you if if you're if you're obsessed with safetyism that's probably the most dangerous thing you can do right because you have to Interact with the enemy, and if you don't, if, you're, if you don't take risk, you can't seize the initiative. Mm-hmm. You see the initiative to your enemy, uh, and you typically lose catastrophically by trying to be safe. I'm kind of interested to know how much
2: this safetyist mentality has permeated the armed forces.
4: Well, uh, you know, there, it's a constant struggle, and I don't want to. We want to get our guest in here, but yeah, this is. But what? You know what? I it, when it, in times of peace, safetyism creeps in. And we saw this in the 1990s. There were all sorts of metrics that were, that were tracked during our interventions in, in the Balkans, which were relatively safe operations compared to combat operations in, in places like Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, and, and it's that sort of focus on the pettiness creeps in, right. can creep into a peacetime armed force. And it's really important that commanders uh, recognize you know, how important it is from a psychological perspective you know, to prepare units to take risk and to act aggressively uh, in in battle.
0: Actually, I want to segue into Joe Rogan, speaking of petty people, but petty people listen to Joe Rogan. You've been on Rogan? To be outraged.
2: You've been on Rogan, Neil? I have not, no, I haven't made the cut.
1: Oh my God, that's shocking. Neil's
2: sufficiently, I'm I'm not not sufficiently (laughs) heterodox. Mary, have you done Rogan?
1: (laughs) I've done Rogan twice.
0: Okay, uh, two things I want to look at with Rogan. First of all, how he handled the situation. Mm And long story short, he first promised to do better when he came under fire for vaccine talk. Secondly, he issued an apology, flat-out apology, after it was unearthed that he had done racial, you know, horribly racial words.
2: There's a video that's out that's a compilation of me saying the N-word. It's a video that's made of clips taken out of context of me of 12 years of conversations on my podcast.
0: And then thirdly, he then turned things around and decided to go after CNN and said, in effect, you guys clean up your act. Lay off me, you clean up your own act.
1: Did he handle this correctly? Well, missing from that, importantly, is mm-hmm. what Spotify did. Um, right. Well, I, w- a- well, I want to get
0: to Spotify in okay. I want to talk about Spotify and the business model. But first, you do podcasts as well. If yeah. you're in front of a situation, would you have done what Joe Rogan did? Or was there a different playbook?
1: Joe Rogan did what he did mm-hmm. because he's fundamentally a good person. Mm-hmm. And he wants to live in a world, a world I think we all want to live in, where apologies mean I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not realist. We live in a world in which apologies are um, a confession of a crime, a moral crime. And it's essentially weaponizing your, it's it's handing your ideological enemies or your political enemies sort of a rope with which to hang you. Mm -hmm. And so while the first sort of David Sachs and others were calling it a non-pology, the first one I thought was was good um, and thoughtful. Um, I do think he's had people on the show that have promoted unfortunate misinformation about vaccines. Then again, he's had on Sanjay Gupta. He's had on almost everybody other than Neil. Yeah. Um, so, so a way, I'm not. So no, in I don't, a way, I'm
2: not holding it against so, him.
1: <laughs> so in a way, it's sort of it was cherry picking. But the second apology, right? It, it's it's unfortunate only because Joe Rogan, as everyone who knows him has attested. It's not a racist. Right. Uh, Joe Rogan's used a word that I never use. Um, but then again, what happens when he when someone who's trying to sort of take him out politically or take him out because frankly he's more powerful than the entire legacy press, a single podcast from a comedian? Right. What happens when they do the supercut of the word dyke or a supercut of the word Tranny or supercut of all of the things that I'm sure he said over the years? Once he starts apologizing, sort of where does that end? Right. And the thing that is concerning to me is the fact that rather than say, and this is the same story at the New York Times, it's the same story in every institution, you know, what did the CEO of Spotify, who I'm sure is a lovely guy mm-hmm. um, and was credibly smart to bring on Joe Rogan, what did he do in response to this sort of, in my view, you know, totally concocted outcry, mostly from his employees and a little bit from a political operation called Midas Touch? Mm-hmm. He agreed to, you know, $100 million in woke indulgences. <laughs> um, he apologized for sort of user safety and, you know, you, again, using this language of safety right. as if a podcast can cause physical harm. I feel like that's yeah. part, like, here's a general <laughs> who bites in wars and here are people in America working, you know, with, not even America, Swedish company. God knows how amazing their s- social services and healthcare is. Talking about how a podcast from a guy in Austin causes them you know, to be unsafe in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if he had to go back and, you know, he did it, I think, because he's a well-intentioned, good person. Unfortunately, I don't think it's getting the result that he intended.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't know how much Joe Rogan uh, everybody watches, but he doesn't really push an agenda. You know, what he's trying to do is he's trying to create a space for open, meaningful discussion, which we all really need more than anything. I mean, that's what you do on on Honestly. and, And I think it's more important than ever, you know, and if everybody is so ready to take offense that's another element of this safetyism everybody wants to be offended and be a victim of something right you know it is the valoration, valorization of victimhood is what we're up against here as well and uh and everybody you know i think is becoming more fragile as a result of this and we need to be resilient right i mean if we're going to use the combat analogy we could take this too far but but you, you really what's important in combat is confidence confidence in your own ability and confidence in the man or woman next to you, and, and the recognition that they're willing to sacrifice for, for the collective good. With absent that, absent that kind of cohesion, and I think you can extrapolate that to social cohesion, uh, that, that you're, you're gonna have an organization that is prone to disintegration, right? Uh, and, and I think you know, in the face of, of battle, you know, a great book by, uh, uh, gosh, John Keegan. John Keegan. You know, he, he said that what battles have in common is human, the struggle of men and of course women now, struggling to reconcile their, you know, their their instinct for self-preservation with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them, right? So I, I think what we what we need is you know, we need to really focus less on our self-preservation and the achievement of the aim, building a better future, you know, for mm-hmm. generations to come.
0: He is the resident optimist, by the way. I love He's it. <laughs>
1: well, the know- thing that scares me though about the Rogan example is You know, this is Joe Rogan. This Mm -hmm. is the most, like I said, the most powerful person in American media, by far. If he can't withstand the mob, what does that mean for everyone else downstream? What does that mean for everyone else that dares to sort of think differently or say something that doesn't go along with every new sort of aspect of the woke orthodoxy? Mm -hmm. Look what happened to him. You know, I I just think you cannot overestimate the, the downstream effects of of an incident like this, which by the way, is is still unfolding, you know, we'll have to see. To me, it's, you know, he's, Joe Rogan can walk away and have an independent platform in a week right. that arguably could be, you know, worth, although you're the economist, worth more than Spotify or worth a lot. I mean, well, I think, according I to some plat- estimates, he's one, dropping like a Taylor Swift album every single day. One
0: platform did of offer him a hundred million dollars to, to leave Spotify. So if the market works to his advantage,
3: yeah, but he is—he can do this because he's big. Uh, right. If if I say something wrong on Twitter, I can't start a new platform. Get no, no one's going to pay me a hundred million dollars to do something else. And that is the. This is just the latest in something we see three times a week in academia. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody dares to utter. You know, some, some slightly ill-punctuated tweet has happened to the guy from Georgetown Law, Law, Law School. William Shapiro. William Shapiro, yeah. Shapiro, thank you. Right. And and immediately they pile on and he loses And there,
2: there is a clear case of bad faith, which I think also applies to, to Joe Rogan and the N-word. The people who launch these attacks know that they're taking words out of context mm. and they are cynically trying to smear somebody. They know that but, this is uh, bad faith. But, but, John, your point is absolutely right. In academia, it's a highly effective tactic because, uh, because Georgetown is not Spotify. Georgetown is in a position to throw Elia Shapiro under the bus if they decide that, on balance, they would rather uh, appease the woke mob and stand up to academic freedom. So here, I think you get a completely but, but, different, but, but, there's no, there's no kind of, Joe Rogan's in a strong position, as you say, Bill, he has got options.
3: Oh well, so this but, is but an easy decision
0: for Spotify because they are choosing
2: Joe Rogan
3: versus Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and people, children, are, you know, music of our youth. But I brought this up for a reason, yeah. which is, is the point is not, you know, Joe Rogan. Right. The point is the conscious self-censoring and silencing of millions of people much smaller down the food chain every professor at an academic institution. And that's, it's how about, how about highly- stu-
4: stu- How about students? Yeah. And
3: exactly. students yeah. and uh, people who work for corporations who now know you know, better, if you get yourself on Twitter, you're out of a job. Right. Uh, if you, and that's, it's highly effective. You, you pervert the English language. Word, I love the words, safety, trauma, and violence now no longer mean what you think they mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, and you effectively um, silence anybody who would even whisper or allow their guests to whisper. Uh, a, a view contrary to the mob. And but that's Barry, but
2: Barry what's, what's your what's your strategy? Because you've been, you've well, been, you've had near cancellation yes. experiences right. and have survived them. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever had, a, have you ever done like one of those, have you ever done one of those big apologies? I can't remember.
1: No, the only thing I apologized for was um, the first tweet of mine that kind of was a bad tweet that went viral. I was intending to praise an, a, a figure skater and I used a line from Hamilton immigrants, they get the job done. Obviously, I'm extremely pro-immigration. My entire record shows that. It was, it was you know, mischaracterized as bad faith, as being sort of anti-Asian racism. Um, anyway, the details of it aren't important. What's important is it was, the, it was my first time in the stocks. And I was at the Times, at the time, and I was going on Bill Maher uh, that week. And they said to me, basically, you really need to clean this up. And I did it and Bill looked at me like I had a third eye, like, why are you apologizing for a tweet? What universe do you live in? But it speaks to your point about, you know, if you get big enough, you can kind of zoom past all of it. You can, you know, post and ghost, as they say, not even look at your mentions. But if you're coming up, and this was a few years ago, you know, I was really scared at the time of what it meant. The, the thing that I've been thinking about, and it's kind of a philosophical question, I don't know the answer to it, If we know that apologies aren't really apologies anymore,
2: they're confessions.
1: They're confessions. What do you do if you actually do something wrong and you want to apologize?
2: You have to take a leaf out of Jackie Fisher's book. Admiral Jackie Fisher, pre First World War, uh, said, never apologize, never explain. And I'm trying to take that to heart because there is no longer any point in apologizing. It's it's That's actually what Trump taught us, sort it's of. the boss. Well, I was just going to say the there must be a
4: boss I used to have. Right? You know, yeah. I to head down to keep going forward. Exactly. But, but isn't, isn't that, that unfortunate? Not, isn't that yeah, it is that the takeaway? It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. I think though, because you know, I, I think, I, I think you know, we want to be empathetic, right? We need to be able to understand really complex problems from the perspective of others. It's really a precondition for having meaningful, respectful discussions. And if we lose that, and if we become defensive to the point that we're saying we're we're never going to apologize because we we believe in our own infallibility or we're at least afraid that if we show any kind of shake in our armor, that is going to be the the beginning of the end force. So I I hope it doesn't get that bad, Neil, but I I understand what you're saying. I mean, Well, it
1: definitely is that bad. The question is, is the right way to resist it by doing as you were saying, you know, taking a page of uh, Trump's book, essentially, and just never giving in, always being defensive, doubling down, brazen through. Or is the solution to sort of, you know, I don't know, like, do the do what we know is the right thing, which is if we want to repair a relationship, or we know we've done something wrong, to apologize, knowing it well, can be used against us.
3: Let's distinguish two scenarios. One scenario is you you have you know you've got 280 characters and and something was mispunctuated or could be taken out of context. Right. Twitter goes nuts. Students are out demanding your your uh, that you be fired and so forth. Uh How you handle that is one question, but the other question is the larger question of public discourse where there isn't, you're not fighting an attempt uh, by the mob to cancel you, and there I mean discourse only happens if you can say, oh, what we do all the time, HR, Uh, gee, I was wrong, (laughs) thanks, you you taught me a great lesson here, Um, can, can you afford in public discourse to say, uh, i've I've just learned something from you. i've I've understood your point of view. now, in, in um, our branch, I, I think you can if you know if if you're not putting a mob at bay, in a lot of our political discussion, that seems harder and harder. It's always you always seem to have to pose as this was the idea I've had since I was six years old, and it's immutable, and I don't right. <laughs> care what anybody else says uh, and, and watching the spin come out of both of our parties. It always seemed to, we were always, not only just we're right now, but we've always been right, and we never listen, and we never change our minds. That's an unfortunate kind of public discourse.
0: I'd like to get your uh, guys' thoughts on the Super Bowl, which I know Neil did not watch. No, I did not. didn't know. didn't I didn't even watch the ads. That's on american
3: Super
0: Bowl. Super Bowl. But if you I'll watch the, the ads, you watch the so. ads, Barry, celebrity after celebrity after celebrity trying to sell you on crypto. And so oh, really? they're just trying to attach celebrity cool to crypto. So maybe that's what Spotify's after by going after the Obamas and Harry and Meghan. They're trying to give you celebrity cool into joining their. Joining I think their the
1: real story is, you know, that Joe Rogan got big enough right. and unignorable enough that Spotify was willing to take a risk on him. Mm-hmm. The Harry's and Megans, the Obamas, the Gimlet's, I could go on. That's par for the course. That's what these companies are. What the shock is, is when you can sort of smuggle in someone across the border of these companies that isn't in line with it. And that really just speaks to Rogan's unbelievable impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think the question everyone else should be asking is, you know, why is it, you know, if you look at his success, why aren't other cable news companies, streamers, you know, uh, other podcasts, like, why aren't they trying to get a piece of that? Mm -hmm. Why aren't they trying to imitate that? Why is it that they're leaving such an enormous audience sort of for him. Unchallenged. To have, yeah. Unchallenged. Yeah. And the reason is the ideological takeover of all of these institutions. They're all too scared to,
2: to do it. But does that mean that in the end, everybody controversial ends up on Substack? I mean, I began this to wonder I, if that right. was where Joe Rogan this was is going what I, to end I up. I think
1: we're going long, long term. I don't know enough about the blockchain. I'm sure you guys know more than me. Maybe that's our way out of this yep. problem okay <laughs> but in the short term i do think what we're looking ahead toward is a world of two of everything and there's going to be the spotify thing there's going to be the blue chip thing let's say in the world of podcasting and music that's mm. going to be technologically good it's going to be sleek but it's going to be ideologically one flavor and then you're going to get the problem of like everyone else is going to go toward this other i don't know what it will be the alternative platform. And you'll get the problem of like it's it's the free speech people and everyone's crazy uncle which one would you want to be a part of so it's going to be two of everything and the one of the two things is going to be worse
2: well maybe we should explain to the viewers a bit about substack and and what it represents and and also how it's going for you since you joined that platform because i think it's it's a very interesting development that so many of the best writers in america you Andrew Sullivan, Mm -hmm. who's been on this show, Matt Taibbi, who was on your podcast recently, and now on Substack. And no longer writing for magazines or newspapers. They are on Substack with subscribers. I subscribe to all of the above. I don't know how you have time, but thank you. I don't. It's, I, I now realize that I essentially pay my friends to write things that I don't have time to read. Uh, it, but this is well, not new to me. I'm a it. member of numerous clubs, which I don't have time to go to. It's a kind of tax that you pay your friends. It's fine. I, I'm hoping they buy my books and don't read them. But let's assume that we're in a, of a, that. an economy of reciprocity where we pay one another to, to do things, to produce things we don't have time to consume. But does this not raise the danger of silo life? where all the people who believe in free speech are subscribing to one another's Substacks, but we've lost. That's basically, we're in shelters, but we've lost the war. That's my big worry.
1: I think we're in a liminal place. I think we're in a place where, let me see if I can do this in a sharp way. Do I need to explain what Substack is or do people know what that is?
2: Quick thumbnail.
1: Substack is a new independent platform. One of many, perhaps you've heard of Rumble, um, mom, maybe you have. Um, perhaps you've heard of Colin. It's it's sort of the Cambrian explosion of new platforms that are trying to uphold the values of the free and open internet. Substack is a platform for writers. It has a range of people, everyone from Salman Rushdie to George Saunders to Padma Lakshmi, Alison Roman, me, all the people you just named, Glenn Greenwald, um, you know, it's it's a mixture of people. Yeah. So about all kinds of it's subjects.
2: It ideologically diverts.
1: Yeah, it's a people. newsletter platform that allows us to get paid directly by an audience. So if you've heard of Patreon, it's quite similar to that. Um, so to go back to your question, have we lost? If the question is, have we lost the legacy institutions? The answer is 100% yes. The question is, what can come from that loss? Right now, we are in the kind of earliest stages of the, of the building of new things what that looks like right now is like you just said it's all these little islands the question is what happens once we're able i don't know even what the right geographic analogy is but to bundle those silos to bundle those islands that's what i think we're heading toward because you might have the you know disposable income and good heart to want to s- you know subscribe to 10 of these newsletters.
2: No, I can't afford it. But you I'm, can't afford it. Honestly, it's exactly. going to break me. It's going to break you. One more subscription it's and I don't know, you. kids are going to have to start going out to school. People watching.
1: are paying more for their newsletters and podcasts and patrons than they are for the old New York Times. And there's a reason that someone like the New York Times they get everything in one thing. That's what I believe that we will be heading towards. So I'd
4: like to coin a phrase, the free speech archipelago. <laughs>
1: Love it! Yes, exactly.
0: Yes, John, a, John has, been, good John has been taking copious <laughs> notes. I know, I'm like, what Bar- do Bar- you I'm, see? Bar- this is this is a business is a, plan. This is a window in a good Fellows. John <laughs> takes notes. Bundle. Neil hates the notes. So I've been waiting for Neil to kind of grab the pen at some point. But I
2: just look over his shoulder and kind of steal the idea.
0: <laughs> I can't read his handwriting. I don't Fire
2: away. I don't know what it says. <laughs> but yeah, come on, you're the economist. How do you get, how do you, this is a, this is well, this looks to me like a classic economics problem it
1: actually is there because are too many subscriptions pe- yes and if you want to bundle people right yeah. let's say i want to go out and s- and propose to andrew sullivan hey let's let's jump if you propose
2: to andrew sullivan that would be a story <laughs> bigger than can you win you know? right i want to do two two preferences. Anyway, too expensive is the point <laughs> right. right no it doesn't it doesn't i don't i can't solve this problem which is one reason i continue to write for bloomberg opinion and uh love that paywall. don't go, go sub <laughs> But John, solve the economist. It's a problem for an economist. I want to make two prefatory comments. This is the difficulty
3: of writing things down. One, Substack, we we were sort of bemoaning. No, 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 See, an historian, he can remember astonishing things. You can ask those guys, and they'll tell you the exact, they'll tell you the sequence of battle in the, the, you know, which division was on the Marneau. Number one, what, there's a, something very hopeful here.
4: When old
3: this. institutions rot, new institutions can Feel enter. Yes. And Substack is an example of, of this Is our one hope, as long as they're allowed to. And this is one of the things I worry about, the new regulation of the internet. What regulation yes. does is it stops entry and, and this right to create new stuff and kick out the old ones. You know, remember, that, oh yes, the internet's all a monopoly. Yahoo, Netscape, and AOL are in charge of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- 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 this is our great hope. Uh, second point: There's this sort of nostalgia for the national institutions where we, you know, we all kind of had one thing together. But that, too, that you know, the early era of the printing press, or even the early United States, was pamphlets and newspapers and people spreading all sorts of fake news. We only got sort of three networks and and three large uh, newspapers under a lot of regulation and a lot of censorship of all sorts of ideas. So I'm I'm not unhappy about lots of crazy ideas. I think that's uh, that's an that nostalgia is, is something we should be aware of, uh, but yes, uh, it needs to come together. And uh, this bundling is the exact. It's kind of unfortunate that. Uh, so I don't subscribe to as many things as I'd love to because they're all under a paywall, mm-hmm. and I want to read one article every two months. And I don't want to just uh, subscribe to this one thing. Why can I not spend? You know, this is, to some extent, there are models for this, but they don't work. Why can't I spend, I don't know, 50 bucks a month and I get access to everything? Well, why why you know, isn't Substack, read, why I, is it substack
2: offering me a bundle where it's discounted? Right, And I can get Barry and Andrew Sullivan and I get Matt Taib. I can get my favorite authors with at least some discount. I'm waiting or, for that to happen or, Market failure guys it's not or maybe quality. you just not a you
1: market could failure it's good for the creator delivered. right okay. it's great for the creator right and the, it, the question right is can you come up with a model that is that rewards the creators in the way we're getting rewarded now or the journalists but there's all kinds of people in this realm that we're talking about that is also effective and um, smooth for the reader. And and, we, that, and we're, we have the first part. We do not have the second part yet. I have some ideas about how the second part could look. I just want to pick up on one thing, which is the regulation thing, although maybe you want to get to truckers later. But it's connected. Well, it, it, I just sit here. Have you been following? <laughs> I mean,
3: well, we, yeah, the economic terrifying We need to finish up the economic happening
1: right now that I don't think most, norm, most normies are following. And <laughs> that is, the, that is we, we, we've, we know what cancel culture looks like in silencing and self-censorship. We know what deplatforming looks like. Now we're seeing what debanking looks like. And what does it mean when, you know, the government of Canada, it's not just GoFundMe. Now it's they're shutting down people's individual accounts, I believe. Um, They're shutting down the use of um, using Bitcoin and the kinds of things that activists use that maybe some people are uncomfortable with, whatever. The point is, they you know, I don't remember any analogous thing happening in the summer of 2020. And now that is happening.
2: So this is the argument for crypto. Yes. Another of my favorite substantial contributors is Antonio uh, Garcia Martinez. Yes. Uh, author of Chaos Monkeys, uh, but a great uh, tech uh, pioneer, as well as a very funny and interesting writer. Great writer. writer. And uh, he commented on uh, recent events, including in Canada, with the uh, the remark, this kind of thing makes me want to you know, load up on crypto and head off into the wilderness. Because to, to go back to this issue of can you be financially cancelled? I think there's a major concern brewing that if, uh, if woke corporations, if wokeness becomes so much a part mm-hmm. uh, of corporate America, mm-hmm. uh, that we find ourselves being told Uh, we noticed that you have a subscription to the notorious heretical figure of Barry Weiss and Substack. We are unable to pay the subscription or if you continue to pay the subscription, we will have to suspend your account. Mm -hmm. That's the point at which I think we're in a new uh, and very worrying uh, environment. And that's when you start to think, where's my ETH, where's my Bitcoin?
1: Well, take the example also of, you know, no fan of Michelle Malkin. It seems like she spun off into crazy land. But should her husband be barred from Airbnb, as he is right now? Right. You know, should we it is, it is, hold people like, accountable like a, for the yeah. moral crimes? Mm, that's the Chinese crimes.
2: social credit system comes to us, that's right? Here. No, that's what yeah. That's what it is. But that's the thing. That's the Chinese government's party system. I mean, I'd like to little... get
0: back to the truckers no, what, for really? a second. If you, no, no, you no, we, we, we
2: got to,
3: okay. Okay. I think I have to... He
1: needs to talk See? about Bitcoin. We've only, only, we're, we're only somewhere.
3: halfway through the pattern. For Let's once, make. I'm having trouble getting a word in edgewise. It's never happened before. Uh, shut up. No, no, it's, you're doing great. <laughs> uh, it's, we want to go on longer than Bill likes us to go point, on. Point 0.3 of eight. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a big issue here. One of the, what are, what's crucial to your political freedoms? Freedom of speech, freedom right. of assembly. The freedom to transact anonymously the freedom to buy and sell without the government knowing what you're doing or approving of it is this is John Cochran view but I'll announce it just crucial to your political freedom and the example you gave of the Canadian truckers I think is is one of the best examples right there Um, if the government can can sanction you for by watching your transactions by 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 freezing you out of the money system now we've had cash cash was anonymous and cash is a the ability to make cash transactions is a wonderful defense for your political freedom not not and and um, you know polit- imagine running for office and everything you ever bought or sold is available online mm-hmm. one one hacker away you could bring down anybody in, instantly um,
4: it's also a great what are, you, what are you buying, John? I was just out of curiosity. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only kidding. I'm only You're kidding.
3: setting me up for making
1: horrible jokes that are inappropriate exactly. for the good fellow But obviously. this is a this is fellows. a hard one. So
3: Bitcoin is uh, just immediately <laughs> will all go to crypto is not the answer. Um, because there's also a problem if, if you have completely cheap anonymous transactions, nobody ever pays taxes again. <laughs> uh ransomware goes nuts. Uh you know, there's there's a point to some so we have with cash we have sort of a an uneasy balance. It's kind of inconvenient. No,
2: but but I could pay, say, with Lightning for my Substack sub without having to run past JP Morgan's well, right. uh mm-hmm. gatekeepers. I mean that's the problem. Well, the government if the banking tell. system's woke. I mean it doesn't need the government. John, it doesn't matter whether the government's woke or not. If corporate America, if Wall Street's woke, then your transactions start to be subject Mm -hmm. to some kind of social credit monitoring. And that's where crypto does offer a solution, not because it's anonymous, but it simply doesn't go through woke woke corporate gatekeepers.
3: Uh, Right. So uh, a little more competition in banking and an understanding that you have some that uh, you have some rights to do things, I think, is without it. I think the uh, the banking and government system and our surveillance system will be able to 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 bottle you up no matter what you do. So, crypto is not a magic solution. To all this stuff because it, it it also you know it goes through computers, which they can they can look at just as easily as anything else.
2: Well, we're certainly not going to be do, doing our substack subscriptions with banknotes. I can't
4: <laughs> see. I can't see. <laughs> exactly. And bags of coins. That's, that's but the it, I guess one of the questions I have for Barry is: so when when does it become? sort of a critical mass of people who reject, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the offensive against freedom of speech. Tell us about your audience. Who are you reaching? What kind of feedback are you getting? Because I think there's a tendency to think, okay, we, we are all of, of a particular political ilk, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a platform that you operate on and that you give voice to people with opposing points of view. I mean, tell us about your audience and does that make you optimistic that you're bringing in uh, I promise uh, I'm not paying him to do ads for me. Um, (laughs) No, but but also you might want to share your vision too, on what you want to do personally to address the failure of the fourth estate. That's something I would like to hear your kind of thoughts on as well.
1: Okay, and then let's go back to the soft social credit system because this to me is enormously important. If Substack Tomorrow decides, eh, we're, we're gonna go woke. You know, that's what happens pretty much every time. So what happens to me then? Okay, great. I go on my own website that I create. But that website is hosted by Amazon Web Services. And that can be subject, as we learned through Parler and all the things that happened around the election, that can be taken offline too. So, are we headed to a world, and then I promise I'll answer your question, where there's essentially a blue stack or a woke stack and a red stack? You know, is that the few, like, that is what I'm fascinated by and cannot stop thinking about because there's like, you know, There's sort of no end to this question. It's it begins with you know cancellations on Twitter. It goes to deplatforming. Now it's debanking. You know, do we sort of need to go to a place where there's going to be two internets? I really loathe to think about that. Um, As for my audience, I think one of the things that's been really gratifying and interesting to me is you know more than after a year, it's like 160,000 people are getting these emails. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot of people, and a big percentage of, of them are paying. And what's fascinating to me is I sort of assumed they would be like me, disillusioned liberals in blue bubbles. In fact, what they are, although there are many of those, and they're like closeted professors at some of our best universities, um, but there's, you know, Christian homeschooling moms, there's ranchers in Oklahoma. It's like America. It's Mm -hmm. the whole range of people. And I think what they have in common is a kind of um, exhaustion with the ideology, but a enough of a sophistication to understand that, you know, if you have prestige world, which is the old world, Mm -hmm. whose prestige is crumbling by the day because its trust is, you know, they've imploded. And then you have maverick world. And maverick world is, you know, cool because it's authentic and it's um, transparent, but it lacks the fact checking and the gatekeeping of the old world. And I think what I'm trying to do, and I hope what my audience sees that I'm trying to do, although I've never quite articulated this way, is to sort of be prestige maverick. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to bring and marry the high quality, um, really truth pursuing elements right. that the and, old and world the ethics, did at it its best the and the dimensions. ethics, exactly, right. married to authenticity and honesty. And I, my bet is that there's just an absolutely enormous audience for that because that's pretty absolutely. much everyone I know.
4: Absolutely. I agree completely. That's what everybody's waiting for needs now and then th- what's great about it is that if there is a place to go you can kind of ignore the nutty stuff because right. you're going to a place that is that is inclusive in terms of the audience and that can be the basis for meaningful respectful discussions about the challenges and opportunities we face i mean that's what we that's what we need to get back to to arrest kind of the you know, centripetal forces that are just spinning us apart from each other
1: yeah i'll say i'll say just two things one is on you know, something that I'm struggling with and and that I criticized the New York Times for, but I realized it doesn't matter if you're an individual proprietor or or CNN or Fox, you face exactly the same problem. And Mm -hmm. that's the problem of audience capture. And that's a problem that aside from starting a nonprofit really hasn't been solved by anyone. You know, if you know that your audience loves a certain kind of red meat, you know, you have to be extraordinarily disciplined not to feed them that same red meat every single time, not to give them the political heroin that they you know, fiend for and to, you know,
4: Maybe some late night cable TV hosts. Yeah,
1: exactly. But like to have the role of an editor and say, you know what? No, I'm going to trade away some short-term profit for the sake of long-term trust. And so my audience knows, you know, I'm going to tell you guys some things that really annoy you. I mean, when I write about foreign policy, it really annoys them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm, or, you know, anything, basically if it's cancel culture every day, they're thrilled. If I mix up what's at the buffet, they're not as thrilled. My numbers go down, but I'm doing that anyway, because I think it's really important to respect my audience enough to say, this is what I'm good at. What I'm good at is sort of curating um, stories about what I think are important in the world. So what's sure. you're
3: building a larger long-term audience, I mean, certainly every, I every survey I see of American Attitudes shows you know, 20% rabid right-wing partisans, 20% rabid left-wing partisans, and a vast majority in the middle who expresses exactly the kind of views you just express. Now, they're, they're less quick to jump. You don't hear from them as loudly, but slowly but surely, they start canceling their New York Times subscriptions if they're mm-hmm. And they start canceling their you know their Fox News or whatever on is, uh, is on the right subscriptions. And slowly but surely, you build a reputation for you know getting that, that audience that you describe. So,
0: Perry, what's your advice to a young journalist who comes out of Columbia or Medill and is now getting into the business and has not experienced the opinion section of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? Would you tell them to go straight to Substack and do their own thing? Or would you put them in a news publication for a few years? How would you proceed?
1: Well, they should send me their application. Um, <laughs> no, I... The thing is, I wouldn't tell them to go to Substack right away. Really? And no. And the reason is that well, for, there's two reasons. One, you know, in order to really succeed on that platform, you need to have built up an audience sort of already. Mm-hmm. That's what we see from the people that are succeeding most on the platform. That and sort right. of first movers. The second thing I would say, and this has just always been true, is scoops are everything. Information is everything. Re- reporting is what I'm looking for, mm-hmm. and. I think that's what any good editor's looking for. And the, and the thing is, is that for all of the ideological things that we detest about the old institutions, we still need a world with institutions mm-hmm. because institutions groom people. How do you think I can do what I do? It's because very patient people poured untold numbers of hours into my growth. They rewrote, you know, every editorial I wrote, you know, every piece I wrote at the Wall Street Journal was rewritten for like five years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing that for people. And that's ultimately what I'm interested in doing, because if you're just a, you know, a really smart person, not me, but a really smart person with a podcast and a newsletter, that's great for you and you can make a really good living doing it. Right. But if you're ultimately interested in changing the culture in a, fu- a foundational way, you have to build an institution because you need a way to sort of mentor younger people and create guardrails and bring them up in a, in, a, in a culture Right, that you are spending a great deal of time creating. So basically, the only thing I do now, other than editing, writing, hosting, is searching for that new talent. Um, and one of the things that gives me hope, actually, and I hope you guys feel this way when you interact with undergraduates here, um, is that oh my god, there's a lot of incredibly talented, sane people who don't want to go along with As, an absolutely, ideology absolutely. that forces them to closet
4: themselves. That, which, that is which, so. That is right? so true. That's my experience completely. Here and in other universities where, where I've taught or lectured, and but what I what I what I do see is a concerning trend toward self censorship among students because they're afraid, you know, to get you know to get the, but, you know the, the the tweet with like five you know fire emojis on it in response to something they say in class. But I think you there's know.
1: here there's two things. One, they need models of people that get the fire emojis and worse, withstand it and become stronger for it. Yeah. They need people that they can look to and say. She did it i can do it too they need heroes and mentors the second thing is that why are they self-censoring they're self-censoring not just because of social pressure they're self censoring because they're thinking if i want a career at mckinsey or goldman or whatever i know middle schoolers that are self-censoring that tell me that because they're thinking i want to get into a good high school i want to get into a college i want i want i want i want this whole system we need to provide those young people with an alternative set of places where they can aspire to, where they can go, where they can have a career, where they can meet their spouses. If the only thing that they have is this sort of like wokeified corporate, you know, blob, mm-hmm. of course they're going to do that because that's the only that's the only world that it seems to them that they can live in.
2: It should be said this is one reason that you and I got involved with the idea of creating a new university in Austin yes. because we don't think it's enough just to be on Substack, we have to build institutions where there can be intergenerational knowledge transfer and where these courageous young people can come thinking, you know what, I actually can say what I think in this classroom and it's not going to lead to my future cancellation. So I I think this is something where we both agree that institution building has only just begun, but we can no longer hold out hope, serious hope of recapturing the established institutions because they've gone. Whether it's the New York Times or Yale, uh, there's, there's no getting it back, certainly not within the lifetime of, of, of Thomas and Campbell. Exactly. You know, but yeah. we have to think about what are they going to do if I fast forward just a few years when Thomas is 18? he's not going to have the opportunities I had when I went to Oxford in the early 80s with the self same Andrew Sullivan. We could say exactly whatever we liked with no negative (laughs) consequences. And thank God there was no social media, so it can't be tracked down and archeologically used to destroy us. But I mean, that doesn't exist now. And I I look at Thomas who's extremely bright and certainly not woke and eager to challenge the things that he's told at school. And I think, well, what are we gonna do with you? For, for just a few years down the line because it, in yale
4: we, can, we, we can't give up though right we had mitch daniels on this program you know we've got you've got you know, from purdue university you've got michael crow at arizona state i mean le- leaders still have a role in reforming institutions but i think you know the creation of the university of austin is a great is a great example of maybe that will help you know awaken the world yes. to the fact that they're going to be rendered ar- irrelevant if they don't uh, if they don't modify their behavior and help strengthen the institutions that, sadly, they're hollowing out. Yeah. One of the things that excites me as an historian is that when I look back
2: over the great waves of intellectual mm-hmm. innovation that, that produced the scientific revolution and enlightenment and then romanticism, a lot of it was done by individuals uh, who directly dealt with their audience. I mean, if you were a fan of Walter Scott, you kind of bought the books as they came out. Uh, same with Dickens writing in installments to a public that was primarily loyal, not to a publisher, but to an author. I'm also struck by the fact that relatively small coalitions of the intellectually willing can achieve an awful lot, and they don't all need to be based in universities. So there is some encouragement from intellectual history that that even although it might seem that the blob is dominant, yeah, the blob was dominant in the pre-Reformation era until it wasn't. And and so I'm I'm kind of when I think about it that way, I, I do think that there's something rather encouraging about the fact that all my favourite writers have defected from the blob and are going it alone. And, and and some of them, I mean, I think, for example, I just read a great piece by Mati Iglesias, a man of the left, but someone who's, who's, who's someone I've greatly admired. Terrific piece, completely going against something that I think, which is that. We have a problem of disinformation and misinformation it's much much worse conspiracy theories are a real problem and he argues no this is not new and the anti-vax phenomenon isn't really something that is especially different now my first response was this has to be wrong but it's the (laughs) fact that i'm reading it and i'm stimulated by it that tells me that, that actually maybe the revolution's well underway it's going in the right direction and gradually we're, we're building a new alternative ecosystem that is just more fun right. than Sounds the blob. Yeah, there's a in life in the blob. The right. blob is deadly. Read the New York Times if you can build. But it's, Let's, it's, let's it get it John and important. then let's wrap up. It is important. Uh,
3: what Barry said, um, we have now an ecosystem where individual successful authors can get their work out. But how do you develop new ones? I've, I've watched sort of economists who are going to the public sphere. And um, many of them make just, what I can tell are rookie journalist errors about mm. How, how you write things, uh, how you quote sources, whether you ask people for for their opinions before you write about them in public—you know, things that the institution of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal beat into you on how to write. So we need institutions as well as ways for individuals to get out. But that's the grand hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look at economic history. You look at history history. It's never been about reforming the big behemoths. It's always been about the ability of new institutions to come in. Because old ones don't reform. You know, the, the big three car companies, they didn't get reformed, or at least to the extent they got reformed, it's because the Japanese came mm. in and cleaned their clocks. Uh, who invented the word processor? Not the typewriter companies. Uh, you know, I, I, Apple came in. This is a it was good an call IBM. Up. I like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the way it's always... So long as new... Inst- this is why, you know, property rights and freedom are important. So long as new institutions can come in and challenge the old ones, so uh, that that's our grand hope. It, you know, the University of Austin is a grand hope. Yes, not the reform, the old battleship, uh, come in with a new one.
1: We okay. didn't do truckers.
3: No, we didn't do truckers. Well, you'd have to come back. We'll do truckers. All again. right. Well, we did a little bit. The, a little the, bit of truckers. Tra- yeah. The truckers getting Can't... their bank accounts
0: frozen okay. is okay. that? don't follow something then we got to go. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke passed away earlier oh. today. The great political satirist. Uh, Beautiful writer, just wonderful, great sense of humor. Uh, I'd like to get each of your thoughts on PJ, but also, Neil in particular, what happened to the great art of political satire?
2: I think the reality became too uh, funny in its own there's, right. There is not. No, there's you know, no P- room left for it. I've never met PJ Rook. i read <laughs> him a lot. He was kind of a way into American politics right. in the 80s and 90s if you were sitting in Oxford. And... and at that time, it, it needed somebody with his irreverent wit uh, to enliven the finer points of Bob Dole's career, which wasn't self-satirizing. Right. But we reached a point where I think, and he would probably have admitted it, he was sort of superfluous because uh, the entire political process jumped the shark in around 2016. And, and, and it became harder and harder to make anything funnier than the news. Uh, so, I mean, I, I I thought really highly of him, but it's interesting that in a way his zenith lies quite some years back when Barry was probably yes. in prep school. I was going to say, school. his
1: books are on my dad's bookshelf. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> I knew you were going to make me feel old. I
1: hate
3: <laughs> you. <laughs> ah, boy, I will miss P.G. O'Rourke. Um, I think it's a mistake to think of him just as a satirist or a humorist. Mm-hmm. I think Parliament of Whores is probably one of the best pieces of political philosophy mm. uh, written. Of course, I don't read as much as I should of political philosophy, but it is. It is I recommend read Parliament of Whores. Mm. It is actually a serious, uh, uh, it, it's, it's like a, a new de Tocqueville about the nature of American mm. politics and society posing, you know, easily digestible because it's so uh, bloody funny. Yeah. And that was his, that was his true. And that, that's timeless. Um, that, that will last a long time. Sure. sure so, we'll
0: give Barry the last word, HR.
4: Hey, I, I just think we ought to celebrate somebody who had a sense of humor, you know, and I think, I think sense of humor is, is, uh, <laughs> and drank is, and is, is smoked, yes. Right, is, is, <laughs> is I, I think it's an indicator of empathy, right? People who have a sense of humor are generally empathetic. We need a big dose of that now, you know, to get away from this Tennessee, for everybody to want to be offended, to want to be a victim, to want to be outraged. Hey, lighten up a little bit, you know, lights up. Right, a large cigar <laughs> in honor <laughs> of
1: say PJ. amen, amen to HR, I've talked too much. You get
0: the last word, Ms. West. That, was that was. is the last word.
1: That is the last word. Amen
0: to HR, <laughs> amen. amen to that. <laughs> Guys, great conversation. Barry, thanks for coming up and joining us today. Hope you had a good flight up from LA and I hope your dad's having a good time here on campus as well.
1: Oh, I think he's excited to be here, thank you.
0: Great. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our special guest, Barry Weiss, thanks for watching today. We'll be back next week with a new show. Until then, take care. And again, thanks for watching.
1: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org battlegrounds. You know what Wordle is? Yes. Yeah. Okay, you too. You guys into Wordle? Yeah. You're a Wordle generation here. Well, I don't
4: know. I don't no, know have played I heard no, it. No, I've 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 managed to wrong? not know what it is.